How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Yeah. Does it feel like you're waiting? Like waiting for things to open up fully so that you can hang out with friends? Waiting for uh, restrictions to be lifted so you can have Christmas with your family? I know about you, but I hate waiting. I do. I hate it. Um, you, you can ask my kids who are here today that if we are supposed to be somewhere at 11 o'clock, like church, and I'm ready at 10 and it takes five minutes to get here, I'm probably going to leave at 10.05. <laughs> because I hate the standing waiting. I hate the waiting. It feels like eternity. If I see a lineup at the grocery store, I go home. I don't even go in. Hate it. And yet in some ways, we are waiting. We're in a waiting period, right? As we've been looking at Romans, we've been seeing that we're in this place of Paul's thoughts on now and later, right? We see it in the thoughts on creation, on the renewal of creation. We see it in his thoughts on resurrection, that we're resurrected now, but we're not fully resurrected. And even the agape meal that Mark talked about last week There's some sense that, yes, we eat together now, but there's a feast to come. But I hate waiting. It's one of the tensions of our faith, that we believe Jesus has conquered death, and yet people around us are still dying. Just this week, we lost one of our community members that had been coming for years and has been a big blow to our community. And we believe that people are free from sin, and yet... I don't know about you, maybe you guys are different than me, but I continue to sin. It's no wonder that Paul exclaimed, oh, what a, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated from sin and death? Paul himself was waiting, just like we are. Did I mention that I hate waiting? <laughs> waiting for justice to be given to those that have been wronged. Waiting for people who are oppressed or in slavery to be freed. Waiting for new bodies that don't break down. Waiting. And yet, I believe that there's a way that we can wait. A way that we can live here and not here. A way of shalom. A way of peace. In many liturgical churches, they do this weird custom. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they pass the peace. Anybody familiar with that? They walk around and they say, the peace of Christ with you, right? And what's the response? And also with you, right? So they walk around doing this weird thing. And it's kind of an outrageous claim, isn't it? To say, I'm going to pass the peace of Christ to you. Angry, bitter people can pass the peace of Christ. It's also an amazing thing. We can be conduits of the peace of Christ. So in the midst of waiting, how do we find or offer this peace to others? What does it even look like? If we consider the life of Jesus, it was peace, his love that made the greatest impact, not violence, right? Even Jesus said, greater love has no one known than those who lay their lives down for their friends. 
And so, so far in our journey through Romans, since a lot of you haven't been here, we've been looking at how Paul is disarming the empire. Right? Paul has disarmed social hierarchies. He himself calls himself a slave right in the very first three words. I, Paul, a slave to Jesus Christ. He has disarmed the economic systems by having people share and give to the poor. And he has done this by pointing to a new reality, the unseen reality of the kingdom of God. An unseen reality that we can live out now and something that we can live out by doing what we say at Royal City Mission, making the invisible visible. And so for me, the waiting doesn't have to be boring. It can be exciting. We're going to be looking at Romans 13, 1 to 7 mostly today. So we're going to put it up and I'll read it to you this morning. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pray to all what is owed to, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owned. What an awful passage. For me, when I read that, the anti-authority man rises up. The stick it to the man of me, yeah, it boils to the surface. But I want to look at, to it, look at it in the context of the time. So we seem to think it's wrong that God places people in authority who are corrupt. And yet... You don't have to look too far to see that there's still corrupt leaders in power. And while we read this this, this passage as a way to keep people from fighting the man or the systems, imagine how a Roman emperor might have read this. The empire or the state has no authority over God in this statement. Who is the final authority? For there is no authority except from God. So this is actually subversive to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the top of the heap. Their Caesars were gods. They became gods. They were the final authority, not the man they had crucified. And we must remember in this, it's who who it is that we follow. Jesus, the resurrected one. The one who submitted to these very authorities that Paul is telling us to subject us to. Jesus subjected himself and was put to death, and yet, even in death, he had ultimate victory and authority. 
I read this like other scholars. I'm not a scholar, but I read it like other scholars. They believe that this passage needs to be read with irony, not just straight. Right? We've already brought up a couple times that about 70% of Paul's hearers lived at a subsistence level. That means the meal that they ate right now was all they had in their house. And to get the next meal, they had to either go find it, work for it, beg for it. Not like us with fridges. Many would have been slaves, right? And their masters would have beaten them, would have used them for sex. And the empire didn't look down on this. In fact, they encouraged this type of dominance. It was how they conquered nations. It used the sword to dominate, to control. So what do you think these people who live at this poverty line and who are subjected to their master's whims thought when Paul said, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad? Even Paul himself faced the unjust actions of the empire, right? Imprisoned, whipped, beaten, and finally his execution. Do you think that Paul was part of those who deserved terror for his bad conduct? The emperor Nero came into power within a few years of Paul writing the letter Romans. And during that time, there was a massive fire in Rome. Most most historians think that Nero himself started the fire, but he blamed the Christians. And so he hunted the Christians down, threw them to the dogs, he nailed them to crosses, put them on stakes, and used them as torches for his garden. Does this sound like, for rulers are not a terror, to good conduct, but to bad? Unfortunately, Romans 13 has been used to support slavery, the Holocaust, the colonization of North America, and to keep evil people in power. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In the midst of waiting, will we be transformed into the likeness of Jesus? So just so that we can see how this passage fits into the rest of Romans. We need to read what's before and after. And this is why many people think that it's read with irony. Because Paul gives us instructions in how we can be conduits of the peace of Christ, how we can pass the peace. But it looks very different than the sword of the empire. Romans 12, 14 to 21. This is the passage immediately before Romans 13, 1 that, that we read, the part that I hate. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and, with those who, and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can do to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take refuge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take rev revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Wait. 
pray that God will bless those that persecute us? That sounds a lot like a cry from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He says here, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And this is important because this, dishonor, this disarms the honor and shame culture of the Romans. You had to have a patron to get you things, someone that could get you material items, that could get you money. And so people only wanted to hang out with people who were higher status because they could get them things. But Paul says, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. He says, never pay back evil with evil. One of the things that I love about the EMCC roots are our pacifist backgrounds. I don't know how we ever got to a just war theory. I still can't figure it out. How can there be just war when, we say, do not, when Paul says, do not repay evil with more evil? And I know that people say, hate the sin but not the sinner, but I see that if you can't eat a meal with someone and love them for where they're at right in that moment, not for what they're going to change into, then I don't think we love like the one we follow. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that Paul quotes Scripture again and again, and he, when he quotes Scripture, he's pointing back to the memory of the Hebrew people. And he says right at the end here, for the Scriptures say, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Paul is likely referring to a passage from 2 Kings that I want to read to you because it's, it's important. 2 Kings 6, 8-23. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha the prophet in Israel tells the king, even the words that you speak in the privacy of your bedroom, Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back. Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O, o Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. When Elisha went out and told them, You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. 
So the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elijah, Elisha, my father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. So how does God treat his enemies? In this passage in Kings, we see his prophet commanding a table to be set with food and drink. It says the king made a great feast for them. We see the same attitude played out in the Last Supper, right? Jesus shares communion with his betrayer. Who becomes our enemy faster than a close person that betrays us? The Bible says in John 13 that Jesus knew who was going to betray him when they ate. Romans 5, 8, 10 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So what Paul is saying at the beginning of Romans 13 is quite beautiful, actually. Paul is saying that when the empire oppresses you, when it demands honor of you, when it uses the fear of the sword or violence to control you, love them. Love those who are caught up in empire. Love those with the swords in their hands. Love those who demand that you call them by titles. Love is the only thing that can change us. It was, in fact, the love of God that sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans 8, 31 to 39 says, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also be with how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are more than conquerors. Do you see how different our conquering is than conquering with sword? The kingdom of God does not conquer with violence. In empire, the enemies of the state are executed. They're punished. They're made, brought into slavery. Vengeance and had. Vengeance is had. But in the kingdom of God, things are very different. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, 
We are conquerors. This is how we are to wait. We are to work for peace where we are, in the midst of people who dislike us, who mistreat us, who look down on us. We work for peace. We know that that looks like in Matthew 5, 38 to 48. For you have heard the law that says punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and do not turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives us sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how different are you from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sounds difficult. Actually sounds impossible. But that's where our relationship with God comes in. It really, it really is difficult. It really is impossible. But we have the mind of Christ. It really is difficult. It really is impossible. But we have the light of Christ within us. We can pass the peace. And maybe we will, maybe we will see our enemies changed or transformed. In the story of Elisha, he gives his enemies food and drink. He treats them with care, and what happens? It says after that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. Now maybe that had something to do with them being made blind, but I like to think it had to do more with the meal. And even though this is a desired outcome, that our enemies would be transformed, we know that Christ continued to love us when we continue to sin. And so we too keep loving. If, if our desire is to see transformation, transformation, then look inward. We don't always have to look outward for people's transformation. It might be our transformation that is needed. Now listen to what follows directly after this passage in um, in Romans 13. So this is Romans 13, 8 to 10. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed, summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Paul simply agrees with Jesus. The greatest commandment, right, is to love God and love others. So even though it sounds like Paul is telling us to obey empire, you need to see that he follows it with a law that is above all the empire's laws. Just as God is the final authority and above all other authorities, love is the final law, and all other law must be in submission to it. Would you do me a favor and stand with me?
I'd like to read something together. We can't sing together, so we're trying to do things that we, we, we do together. And so there's a, prayer, a peace prayer by St. Francis that I'd like to read together. Let's read it together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Father God, we are thankful for the peace of Christ. Thank you for trusting broken people to carry that peace. Thank you for including us in it. And now, God, would you bless us with your presence as we leave here and throughout this week, God. I pray that as we come into contact with others, you would help us to bless those who curse us, to feed those who are enemies. And above all, God, help us to love. Now go in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.